This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the technology strategy for the U.S. Small Business Administration, SBA? How is it using technology and innovation to change the way it does business? And how has SBA adjusted its operations to meet the demands of its pandemic recovery mission? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Sanjay Gupta, Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration. Sanjay, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Michael, glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So, Sanjay, before we delve into you know specific initiatives, um, around your portfolio, would you provide us with a, a brief overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Small Business Administration, SBA? Yes, absolutely. So SBA is a cabinet-level agency that was created in 1953. So that puts us to be about 68 years old as an agency now. And at the high level, the mission of SBA is to you know, assist small businesses, entrepreneurs, and provide them resources and support they need to start, grow, and expand their businesses. And also, if there happens to be a, some natural disaster, help them recover from that uh, natural disaster. So resources in general include things like access to capital in the form of loans or loan guarantees or opportunities in federal contracting, uh, access to like uh, educational resources for entrepreneurs or startups, and of course, disaster assistance. So that's at a high level what our uh, broad um, agency mission is. Now, while SBA is one of the smaller size cabinet level agencies, SBA has served a critical role in the nation's largest ever economic recovery in- initiative in response to the COVID-19 global pandemic in the last year and a half plus. So let me help put that in context and I'll talk more about this, Michael, as we go along in our discussion today. In a typical year, SBA processes anywhere from 25 billion to you know, 30 or 35 billion in capital in a given year. And since March, 2020, SBA has processed over $1 trillion in capital to aid in the nation's economic recovery. And mind you, some of these programs are still underway. So, so that number will probably continue to grow uh, as time continues to you know, keep moving on. And also just from a high level standpoint, from a staffing standpoint, uh, the SBA staff has gone up, up by about four times the size we were pre-pandemic. And of course, I'll talk more about it, but hopefully that gives a little context, even though we call, we are called the Small Business Administration, uh, I think we've had a disproportionately larger role in the nation's economic recovery initiative. Absolutely. Um, that's a great uh, starting point. Thank you, Sanjay. I was wondering about your specific duties and responsibilities as the chief technology officer at SBA. Can you tell us more about those responsibilities? And perhaps you could outline for us the portfolio under your charge and how it supports the overall mission of SBA. Absolutely. Yeah. So as the SBA's chief technology officer, I'm responsible for the overall technology strategy that enables the SBA mission. Now, part of it includes obviously IT modernization and innovation that specifically helps in delivering the SBA's mission. So as an example, I've had the opportunity to increasingly leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions in two broad domains. And more specifically, their relevance has only become more important in the last year and a half plus uh, as part of our COVID-19 response. 
So let me give the perspective of the program side first, and then I'll talk about the cybersecurity side. So on the programmatic side, we increased and accelerated the use of algorithm-based decision support systems. Uh, given the volume of applications for loans and grants that we have been processing, it was only important for us to be increasing the use of these solutions that have allowed us to increase our throughput. And then on the cybersecurity side, I had the opportunity to implement SPA cybersecurity vision, and I'll talk more about it later, but part of that portfolio has been the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning, and more specifically, anomaly detection capabilities. And those, again, have been immensely beneficial to us, specifically in the last year and a half plus, uh, as all of us, or most all of us, have been working in a virtual environment. And that has obviously changed the landscape from a cybersecurity standpoint. So it's been about new innovative solutions, implementing them at scale, and that's all part of my portfolio. A couple of the things I want to kind of also highlight here is in the last year and a half plus, we've had an overwhelming reach out by the vendor partner community to the SBA, each of them offering their help and support. And this was anywhere from a Fortune 50 company to an early startup. So I've served as a point of contact for these outreach, and it has had really two benefits uh, at a broad level. First, I was able to reach out, connect with these individuals, and spend at least 30 minutes with each of them to hear them out in terms of what their product and service solutions are, or what is it that they were proposing to help SBA with. Second, it was also helping me learn more about what the state of the art of the nature is from a technology standpoint. And of course, it did help our program leadership to you know, focus on their program delivery and not be distracted by this. And I've had more than 100 plus such uh, outreach calls in the last uh, year and a half plus. And so that's been a very, very uh, invigorating experience for me as well. Two final points uh, as part of my portfolio is I'm leading a cyber innovation team, which is comprised of you know, a few CTOs and chief information security officers or CISOs, uh, which is broadly around the mandate to say, how can we come up with new innovations in the cybersecurity domain, which can be applicable across the federal landscape? And finally, I'm also a board member of the Technology Modernization Fund, uh, which as you may know, was you know, funded with 1 billion in the American Rescue Act uh, in, in March of 2021. So I have a kind of a broad portfolio of things and, and I'll talk more about it as we go along here. Yeah, well, thank you, Sanjay. I mean, that was a great uh, response. I was wondering, given such a, an important portfolio, given the fact that we're in sort of whatever we want to call, whatever the cliche is of today, the next new normal, the, the new normal, if you will, um, I was wondering, what are your top management challenges uh, that you have faced and how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah, another great question, Michael. The top two or three management challenges that I see people around budgets and contracting and acquisition. So on the people thing side, we have really two key challenges. One, the skills and competencies do not match the skills and competencies that we need for today's modern technologies. Second, we do not have enough resources to go around or just purely in terms of numbers, the number of skilled resources or even just resources we have is not adequate to the demand that we're supporting. First and foremost, we have made increased availability of training, especially in new technologies like cloud and cloud foundations, 
and data and cybersecurity in a cloud environment. Second, we've increased our leverage of using contractor resources where it has been possible and it has been appropriate. Third, we've uh, had a major initiative around workforce where we have defined new career paths and specifically focused on the technology workforce and helping them see how they could choose a career path which will allow them to grow uh, from a technical standpoint, but also from a managerial standpoint. And last but not the least, uh, I recognize that there are programs like the Presidential Management Fellows Program or the PMF program that you can tap into to get resources. Granted, they are only there for a short period of time, like six months, nine months, or a year program. But still, you have a resource available, some smart individuals who can help you and augment your workforce. So, so those are the things that I've used from a people's standpoint. The second domain I talked about was budget. You have to start looking for what I call is cost savings opportunities. I know what to look for opportunities for cost savings. And to be able to realize them and use those funds to be able to divert towards some of your modernization or innovation initiative. And that's what I've done uh, here at the SBA as well. So it comes down to understanding how the budgeting process works in the federal world, which is, as I learned very quickly, uh, it's called as, uh, you know, it's labeled as a 12-month appropriated money. Well, of course, that's assuming you had a, a appropriation at the start of your fiscal year, which at least in the few years that I've been here, I don't believe we've had any fiscal year start where we had the full 12-year appropriations, you know, made available to us because of chain, uh, uh, continuous resolutions. And so what that means is you even have less than a 12-month window to use the allocated budgets there. And so that creates its own nuances. So let me kind of talk about some of the ways that we are trying to address these uh, challenges from a budget standpoint. So first and foremost, I talked about the self-funding model. But again, I want to point out that the self-funding model by itself is not an endless pitch, so to speak, because once you realize those cost savings opportunities, then there is not much more to go and chase them any further. So yes, you can initially get uh, some cost savings uh, from those contracts and maintenance contracts, right-sizing. But once you have done that, that opportunity will no longer have the, the same impact as you did initially. Second is, you know, leveraging other funding sources like the IT Working Capital Fund. I just want to point out that SBA is one of the first agencies which under the MGT Act was able to uh, get the IT Working Capital Fund created. What that does is high level, it allows the CFO and the CIO to be able to sweep up money at the end of a fiscal year, which has not been used and direct it into this IT Working Capital Fund, making it in essence a three-year money pool in which you can use for modernization or the Technology Modernization Fund, or um, you know, within GSA, they have the Technology Transformation Services, or TTS, and sometimes they also have some funding. So what I'm trying to say is that you know, uh, leveraging any or all of these funding sources that might be available to you. And last but not the least is obviously working with your congressional budget justification process to see if you can uh, try and make a good case to see how your uh, budget appropriations could be increased. Now, in the dimension of contracting and acquisitions, I have to say, this is a really tough one. I think one of the key challenges in the contracting acquisition process is, you know, increasingly, the IT world is moving into what I call is a consumption-based model. So you're no longer buying like servers and equipment or discrete pieces of equipment. And in a consumption-based model, it's not easy to determine how 
much you will consume in a given period of time. So you project that and then you make the uh, acquisition against that. So I think just to net out three management challenges around people, around budgets and contracting and acquisition. That's, that's amazing. See, I was wondering, is there something you want to tell us about your career path and where'd you come from? And I know you said when we were off mic earlier that you have been in the federal service for about four years. Can you tell us a little bit more about your um, private sector experience? Absolutely. So in a nutshell, I bring with me an exclusive combination of experiences as a CIO, CTO, a management consultant as an analyst. So I've been a CIO CTO for nearly 15 years now, both in the private sectors and now in the public sector with the you know, last four and a half plus years as the CTO at the SBA. Prior to that, I led a consulting practice at Gartner, uh, another name of a company which I'm sure most people in the IT, people, IT domain know about it. And I've also authored and published 20 plus research papers with IDC directed to fellow CIOs, CTOs, and board directors advising them on the nexus of business and technology. In a nutshell, what really energized me is the opportunity to make a business impact, something that is strategic, something that's transformational, and yes, something that enables the mission that has to be the foundation. In the last four plus years that I've been at the SBA, I led major transformations. So just to give you a quick thumbnail of that, Michael, in 2017, I was new to the federal government, and within a few months, I launched the SBA Cloud Initiative. Um, that's the 82 days to a cloud journey with no funding. But the big impact of that was in fall of 2017, when three major hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria, had landfall. And so part of our disaster response mission was immediately went into high gear. And as they were ramping up, they went from a size of about 800, 900 people to about uh, nearly 6,000 people uh, in less than about 60 days. In 2018, I led the 90-day Trusted Internet Connections, or TIC, modernization initiative with OMB, DHS, and GSA. In 2019, I had the opportunity to lead in a similar 90-day CDM, or Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Modernization Initiative with DHS. And then, of course, 2020 and last year has been an exponential scaling you know, to support all of the COVID programs that SBA was at the forefront of. So instead of to summarize, I would say these initiatives not only benefited the SBA, but it has demonstrated the larger federal landscape innovation at scale. And what I call is the art of the possible in a collaborative manner. Wonderful. And, you know, it's a great segue into getting a sense of, uh, of how you lead, Sanjay. What characteristics in your mind make one an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of the leadership principles that you know, sort of guide your efforts. Definitely. So for me, they come down to five key principles, and I'll go over them. So let me just first list them out, and then we'll, I'll talk about each one of them briefly to give an idea of what they mean. The first is think big, start small, iterate rapidly. The second one, and again, these are not, not in no order of priority or importance, just sort of a listing, really, is challenging the status quo. Third is about empowerment. Fourth, it's about learning by doing and demonstrating value. And last, it's about being inclusive. So let me talk about think big, start small, and iterate rapidly. So the think big part is having a grand vision, setting a vision. The next two words is start small. And what that means is simply, you have to find a business situation, a business case 
where you can apply the vision that you talked about, obviously in a smaller scale, in a scope, to demonstrate what can you achieve with that vision, but it is tied to a specific business use case. And in the small iteration, and you're starting small, you're doing it in a controlled manner and you're learning from that. And as you learn from it, you continue to iterate rapidly and then scale up. So that's what those, those six words mean. And this to me is the, really the key and the foundational piece from my leadership standpoint. So challenging the status quo, it's about a mindset shift. And you have to have an inherent belief that there's a better way to do something. And I think I can use that to deliver better value to the, to the business and to the mission. Next is about empowerment. And this ties into my first principle about, you know, think big, start small, and iterate rapidly. So once you have developed the vision, then you have to empower the team to achieve it. And what that means is you have to give them the latitude and to drive towards the goal. The next thing I talk about is learning by doing and demonstrating value. So let me explain what I mean by that. You are going to make some mistakes in that process. But you have to do it in a manner which is, you know, in a prudent manner. You're not reckless about taking risks there. And you're doing it in a manner where the individuals who are learning have the ability to learn the most of that environment, right? So that's why it's all about learning by doing. The second side of this is demonstrating value. You take a business case, use case, you use some technologies or solutions and apply them and give them a demonstration of what you can achieve, granted in a small scale, in a small scope, but that opens doors more quickly than talking about it. So it's about doing things to learn and then demonstrating things to be able to get your business folks to uh, engage with you. Uh, the last one is about being inclusive across multiple dimensions, as in within your team, across agencies, and across industry and your partners that you work with so that we can work together and we can deliver value together. What are the technology priorities of the Small Business Administration, SBA? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sanjay Gupta, Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration, SBA. Sanjay, uh, technology plays an integral role in how the Small Business Administration meets its very important mission, as you uh, clearly identified in the last segment. Uh, to that end, would you tell us more about SBA's technology strategies, and perhaps you could offer us some of your key priorities? Absolutely. So one of the things I should, I want to start with by saying is the COVID-19 global pandemic has brought about a new recognition of the critical role IT or information technology plays for the mission delivery. And it doesn't matter if you're in the public sector, private sector, academia, uh, not-for-profit, uh, and you could be anywhere in the globe. So organizations that had invested in modern technologies before the pandemic we're in a far better position to respond to the changes brought about by the pandemic, such as, you know, virtual work environments, like pretty much everywhere across the globe, people immediately went into a virtual work environment. And so what we saw, even at the SBA, is a difference. So areas where we had modern solutions in place already, we were able to pivot quickly there versus the areas that we were not 
as modern and we're using traditional technologies. So in terms of the technology strategy for the SBA, it's fundamentally founded in the SBA mission and the business needs and the business goals that we're trying to achieve. At the highest level, I would say it's about delivering improved citizen services. It's allowing the use of things like automation or technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning that makes value-added work more important for the SBA workforce as opposed to the mundane work. It's about increasing the reliance on data and facts to drive policymaking and decision-making. So we're using data increasingly and that is informing our decision-making processes. And I should also point out that the SBA administrator has three priorities. And one of our three priorities is about technology-led and technology-driven. So in that sense, it has given us a new impetus to be able to examine everything we do at the SBA from that technology-driven or technology-led lens to see how can we now improve it, enhance it, or increase the effectiveness or the productivity of that program. So in that sense, I think we are uh, well-positioned. One final point I want to make on this is that, and this is just my observation, that I think as a federal IT environment, we do need to increase the focus on innovation. And the reason I say that is, if you look at the total annual IT spend across the large federal landscape, that's a significantly large number. And I think we can spur more innovation. I think we can spur more collaborations and partnerships across the agencies so that we can learn from each other and also join forces and solve common problems that I think a lot of the agencies are facing. Sanjay, are there any specific internal drivers or external trends that kind of shape and inform this strategy? Yeah, I would say on the internal side, like I mentioned earlier, Michael, um, and our administrator had three key priorities for the SBA. And one of that is, you know, technology-driven and technology-led. So certainly that is a key contributor uh, to what informs from an internal standpoint. Certainly another one is around equity. And we're looking at ways to reach the traditional underserved communities and seeing how can we use technology to help us you know, meet that equity objective. And certainly customer experience and citizen experience is always key. From an external standpoint, and the thing that I kind of look at is usually I scan the, if you will, the external landscape in general. I've been you know, quite in tune with what's happening in general. And so for example, I think cybersecurity has become increasingly vital and what I'm saying is that most every organizations have realized that, you know, cybersecurity can and could have a debilitating impact on any organization, regardless of their size or scope or industry that they work in. And in the last 12 months, I think that realization has come to bear. So there is obviously a heightened awareness around cybersecurity and the need for paying more attention to it than we traditionally have. And then, of course, I pay attention to obviously the emerging technology, like a case in point is about, you know, the, the quantum computing, which is quote unquote around the corner now. And what might that implications be uh, from our standpoint? It's not quite real yet, quantum computing, but it is not so far in the distant future that we, we don't start thinking about it. So I usually try and keep an you know, eye out for these broader events and, and factor them into uh, what I would consider is you know, kind of constantly reviewing the landscape to see what changes and what uh, positions we need to, you know, adjust based on what's happening in the broader market uh, scape. 
That's terrific. You know, I'd like to transition right into some of the initiatives that you've been pursuing, and in particular, modernization. Uh, uh, can we explore how you're modernizing infrastructure and systems? And where I'm going with this is perhaps you could tell us more about SBA's cloud journey and cloud migration efforts. But what are some of the benefits and key challenges to moving to the cloud? Certainly. And like I was saying earlier, Michael, uh, I had the opportunity to launch the SBA Cloud Initiative in spring of 2017. Uh, I, I, I realized very quickly that uh, there was a confluence of events at the SBA at that point in time. Our primary data center had all kinds of um, challenges in terms of aging, out-of-date equipment, uh, overheating in the data center, uh, and few other environmental challenges. And obviously, there was a reliability issue in terms of being able to provide some even basic uh, IT services in a reliable fashion. So having had experience with cloud uh, previously and, and knowing the, the benefits, and I'll come, out, come and cover some of the benefits here shortly, led this cloud initiative, which I talked about earlier, again, 82 calendar days. Again, mind you, these are not business days, calendar days to, to get us from no cloud to our design, architecture, and migration plan to that and which ultimately led us to uh, immediately in the fall of 17, you know, realize the value that the Cloud Foundation had helped us you know, build. I want to point out that while there may have been some cost savings and cost avoidance opportunities in our disaster response, but to me, the most important part was the time saving we had and the acceleration we had in our disaster response uh, couldn't have been achieved had we gone the traditional route of acquiring more hardware and, and, and going through the whole cycle of that. Uh, again, that cloud foundation has provided SBA a tremendous ability to scale up exponentially uh, to respond to the, the COVID-19 pandemic response here. There are three key benefits, and there's probably more to it, but first and foremost, it is speed to execute. And because in the traditional model, if you think about it, you know, you had to go and acquire hardware, acquire software, do the installations, configure it. And now you're in a position to start, quote unquote, building a solution for the business, right? And this upfront time sometimes took long and they were long cycles. And especially in the federal government, the, the contracting acquisition process is the contracting acquisition process and it takes the time it takes. So now if you already have a footprint in the cloud, your ability to start building that business solution is now probably reduced to hours and no longer months or quarters. So that is to me the single most important aspect or the benefit of having a cloud. The second one is obviously, which comes with the cloud's inherent nature is the ability to scale up and scale down based on demand. And I think, especially in the SVA instance where our mission includes disaster systems, which is unpredictable, because natural disasters, yes, we may have some idea, you know, this is the hurricane season, for example, that we are under right now as we're speaking. So yes, we are likely to have more hurricanes during this period of the year, but we cannot necessarily predict how many and how hard and how what category those hurricanes will be and if we'll have a landfall as well, right? What might be the potential impact? So the nature of a business requires us to be flexible and be able to address those changes in the business demands in a quick manner. So that's the sort of the second aspect of it. The third aspect I would say is from a purely financial management standpoint. So it allows us to move away from a CapEx model to an OpEx model. And that I think is a really critical aspect because it takes us away from 
the cyclical investment cycles where every three, five, seven years, whenever you needed to refresh your hardware, you had a huge spike in your capital spending, and then you waited for the next cycle to happen. And so that cycle continued on, uh, and, and, and that never was a, um, a easy discussion with the CFO when you needed to do the, the major tech refresh. So, so those are some of the, the, key, the challenges, uh, the, the benefits. There's also probably a couple of challenges, I think, I think in, in balance I want to talk about. First off, it's a mind shift, mindset shift. It's a paradigm change going to a consumption model because traditionally we've been used to, you know, buying a hardware asset or server, and then you basically now have the full asset available to you for the life of the asset. So you're not necessarily paying much more than the sort of the electricity cost or the cooling cost to run that, uh, the server now. Now, given that this is a consumption-based model, you have to look at it in just sort of what I call is like a utility at your home. It's like a light switch. When you turn it on, your, your bill starts on. And when you turn it off, your bill is off now. So, so that's a, a shift in the way you think about these assets. There's also change management processes. Like for example, if you had change management processes that took months and, or weeks to go through a change, now in the cloud environment, you can potentially have those changes you know, within a day or sometimes multiple times during a day. So you have to change your processes there. The second aspect is you need a workforce that has an understanding of what the cloud computing model is about. And you have to know that fundamentally to be able to leverage the examples. So example, I'll just give you a very high level perspective on that. So usually, regardless of which cloud service provider you're using, there are two ways in which you consume the cloud. One is what I call is a pay-as-you-go model or a pre-committed model. And on the face of it, one may not necessarily think too much about it, but if you think about it closely and if you understand the pre-committed model, you decide on a pre-configured um, um, cloud resource that you want to consume and you make a commitment say over a year, two years or three years and you get a discounted price for consuming that cloud resource versus if you were going to consume the same resource for the same amount and for the same capacity over the two-year period of time, you could be from a cost standpoint more than 50% cheaper in the pre-committed model versus the pay-as-you-go model. Mind you, you're consuming the same sources or resources, but just that how you set them up. So this is one just example to illustrate the fact that the people who are the workforce that are driving the use of your cloud resources, you have to have a really good understanding and be able to leverage these benefits when you can. So Sanjay, I'd like to dig a little deeper on how moving to the cloud helps SBA meet its mission more effectively. And for example, how does it enable SBA to surge staff and support resources during crises like responding to natural disasters or managing the emergency programs related to pandemic assistance? And yeah, definitely. Let me talk a little further on that, uh, Michael. And so I mentioned about the natural disasters and, and it's you know unpredictable. And so we have to flex to when those situations or those uh, situation demands a, a surge up. Like I was talking about earlier in the Harvey, Irma and Maria times, uh, the Office of Disaster Assistance team went from, you know, pre-Harvey, uh, Irma and Maria from 800 or 1,000 people to about 6,000 people in less than 60 days. Now, in the, in the global pandemic response, our overall staff size had grown 
at the peak at about four times the size we were at, at before pre-pandemic. And so one of the things that it creates is, and especially in the last year and a half, the, the, the problem was supply chain disruption and availability of laptops. And if we go back in time from last year, March 2020, April, May, June 2020 timeframes, there was this acute shortage of laptops. Now, clearly, when we were ramping up at the SBA and ramping up people to support our mission and, and the increased scope of our response, we needed those people and we needed them on board and we needed them productive, but we didn't have laptops available. So let me give an example of how we use the, uh, the Cloud Foundation. So back in 2017, in fall 2017, when I talked about, I'd introduced the notion of using virtual desktops, which were set up in our SBA Cloud. And so we'd use them then, and then we had not had a huge uptick in the use of that uh, capability since then till uh, in March of 2020, as we started ramping up on people, but we didn't have laptops available. So what we did was we allowed people, as we onboarded new staff, to use their personal laptops, use the internet to connect to the SBA virtual desktops and have them become productive very, very quickly. Now, granted, yes, you know, somebody may say, well, what about cybersecurity, right? And I'll talk about that later when I talk about some of the cybersecurity vision and the implementations I've led. But we were maintaining our cybersecurity posture. We were allowing people to become productive quickly. And we were leveraging the SBA Cloud's virtual desktop infrastructure there. And at the peak time, we've had up to 2,500 users on the virtual desktop environment. The few additional benefits, in addition to being able to get the staff onboarded quickly and productive without having what's called the government furnished equipment or the GFE laptop, we also saved on cost. We saved on time and we were able to get people productive, which was really critical from a business response standpoint. So that's just one example of how we used the virtual desktops. Let me give just one other quick example, which probably illustrates this even further. So like most other organizations, SBA also uses email-based customer service functions. So customer support, say, at sba.gov. And so in March 2020, as SBA started leading the two flagship programs, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, and IDLE, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, our floodgates opened and our email support systems were becoming saturated very quickly. So looking at that situation at hand, I looked at uh, our case management system and we implemented a solution which allowed us to harvest these emails, create a unique case, and implement automated workflows. And again, these are all cloud-based resources that we were using for our case management system. But it allowed us to then, if you will, address the overwhelming nature of our email-based cloud uh, our customer support function and be able to uh, manage it from becoming uh, a major disaster because people, rightfully so, they were hurt economically and they're looking at the SBA for help and they're reaching out over email for, let's say, some customer support function or question or clarification. And we were uh, lagging behind our ability to respond. And so we used the system and we quickly adapted the system to allow us to uh, respond to this. And we, it allowed us, since it was a cloud-based system, it allowed us to scale up and down uh, without necessarily worrying about it. Let me just give you one final example on that. SBA.gov, our primary portal to the world, 
a few years before the pandemic, we had moved it to a cloud environment, but more so we had even moved it to a microservices architecture. So in April of 2020, the president at that time tweeted SBA.gov in one of his tweets, and within a blink of an eye, our traffic on SBA.gov skyrocketed. And nearly there was a thousand percent increase in the number of users coming to SBA.gov. But since this was on set up on auto scaling in a cloud environment, in a microservices architecture, we did not see a blip in there. And the architecture and the systems performed just as they were intended to perform. They scaled up based on the demands and responded and our performance did not even take a hit. So there's probably many examples I could talk about, but you know, these are hopefully illustrative of how the cloud has been of tremendous benefit to the SBA um, over the last four and a half years, but especially so in the last year and a half plus. So Sanjay, uh, the cyber attack profile since uh, every agency almost has gone remote has increased exponentially. Uh, given the evolving nature of the cyber threats agencies face, would you elaborate on your efforts to enhance technology security across the enterprise at SBA? And perhaps you can tell us how do tools such as trusted internet connection efforts, CDM, and machine learning factor in to your efforts to enhance SBA's cybersecurity posture? The vision I laid out was very simple. The simple vision is we need to have a singular way to manage, monitor, secure all IT assets in SBA. And what that means is if the asset is a mobile asset, if the asset is a virtual asset, if the asset is a physical asset, uh, it does not matter. If it is a cloud-based asset, if it's in purple colored cloud versus orange colored cloud, it does not matter. We look at all IT assets in a uniform way, in a singular fashion. And by the way, I deployed tools in a cloud environment, which allowed us to manage, monitor, track, and secure all IT assets in this sort of uniform way. Now, I want to point out, this is not one single tool, it's a collection of tools, uh, and, and they come from many sources. But the idea is that we have a singular way to manage, monitor, track, and secure all IT assets. What that has done is, back in 2017-18, it gave us immense visibility into the entire SBA IT environment. And quite frankly, what it did was that as people moved into the virtual work environment, a lot of the agencies faced the challenge of saying, well, you're no longer on an agency network, so I don't know how to protect you. In our case, quite frankly, that did not really make much of a difference for the simple fact that the way I had set this up back in 2017 and 2018, it did not matter where the individual or the endpoint, as we say, was located where they were connecting from, meaning if they were outside an agency network in, in, in the last year and a half, everybody's been working remotely. So very few people, if you will, are connecting from an agency location or the agency network. So they're connecting over the internet. So we had the full visibility because of that setup. And that has allowed us to maintain the cybersecurity posture given the, the increased nature of a work here. And obviously, you know, given the fact that we are processing over a trillion dollars, that has obviously uh, you know, attracted more attention than we would probably have desired as well, right? Now in terms of, let me give you some examples of how we did this and what, what kind of things, some simple solutions that I put in place. And, and you mentioned about AI ML, and I'll talk about the tick and the CDM as well in just a minute as well, is that, for example, geofencing. Uh, so in March, 2020, I realized that these economic recovery initiatives were focused on the continental United States. So uh, working with my 
CISO, the chief information security officer then, I said, look, let's just implement geofencing. What that does is it blocks traffic, network traffic to be more specific, that originates outside the continental United States. So for simple fact, we implemented this and we put this all across all of our portals. So we had you know, basically blocked any traffic that was network traffic that was originating outside the United, continental United States. We implemented things like conditional access. Now, what that means is it takes a series of conditions into account, meaning where the traffic is originating from, meaning a person's uh, home office or let's say a shade uh, space if they're working in, let's say, a coffee shop or some other location where there is a shade public uh, Wi-Fi that they may be using. Uh, so, so you associate a reputation score for that IP address from where that traffic is originating. You associate a risk profile of the user, which again, I'll talk about just in a minute about how we build you know, user profiles in an automated manner through the tools. And then you put in the variety of other combinations of signals like uh, the, the vulnerability level of the endpoint that they're using uh, or the patch levels and so on and so forth. And that goes into a dynamic engine which determines the level of access the individual should be granted given those input signals. And so, so this conditional access is one of those capabilities we had turned on and accelerated the use of uh, during the pandemic. This was something which we had implemented earlier, but we had not necessarily seen an, an advanced uptake of the use of this. Granted, most people were you know, working from an SBA location. So these are some examples of how we were able to overcome the, the challenges that most of the agencies had faced. Now, in terms of the, the AI MLUs, I'd mentioned earlier that from a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, the tools that are implemented gave us what I call our anomaly detection capabilities. And let me give some very quick examples of that. First and foremost, so for example, uh, I log in and my login shows coming from Washington, D.C., let's say at 8 a.m. Eastern. And let's just say at 9 a.m. Eastern, it shows I'm logging in from Los Angeles, California. Now, clearly, I could not have been in Washington, D.C. at 8 a.m. Eastern and at 9 a.m. Eastern being in Los Angeles, California in 60 minutes duration. So what that would have done is it would have flagged an alert for a security operations team to look and say, improbable travel alert, saying me as an individual could not physically have gone from the East Coast to the West Coast in 60 minutes apart. And so they would look into that and, and, and be able to find out if there was something you know, in, in nefarious going on or it was just a false alert as an example. And so some of these capabilities are built into the tools and we had turned on these capabilities early on and that allowed us to see how the traffic was originating and user profiles that were built in an automated fashion and they generated alerts based on the pattern of the users. When I set this vision and implemented the vision, the two things amongst other things it did was it allowed us to meet the, the tech requirements but it also allowed us to meet the CDM or the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program requirements. It allowed us to showcase, you know, working with, you know, in this case, um, DHS team to say that we could achieve the objectives or the goals of the programs without necessarily adopting the, the, the prescribed architecture by those programs. And that's been a huge thing. Uh, and, and it's also allowed OMB to, you know, issue new guidance like the PIC 3.0 policy that came out in December of 2019. Uh, and that has been a huge uh, uh, asset uh, for all agencies, quite frankly, uh, and especially in the last year and a half. How is SBA using emerging technologies to be more effective? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues 
on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sanjay Gupta, Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration, SBA. So Sanjay, uh, would you outline SBA's digital transformation strategy? What are the core pillars of the strategy? And perhaps you could you could give us an update of the progress in this area. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and I think really comes down to three key elements. First and foremost, it starts with what I call is customer experience, or in our case, citizen experiences. I'll expound on that and give some examples of what that is. The second is what I call is digital-only workflows. And the third and the most important aspect of this is data. We need to emphasize, I know we're all technologists talking about technology, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that technology is an enabler of the mission, which is ultimately serving our citizens or customers, whichever way you want to think about it. So that's why I start by saying any digital transformation we're talking about has to be founded in what is it doing to improve the overall citizen slash customer experience. And you have to look at it from a customer lens first and foremost. And yes, you know, there will be some benefits that the internal organization will also accrue by the digital transformation, but certainly you have to start with the customer aspect first. So let me give you some examples from, from what does that mean? So if you're talking about customer experiences, and at least I'll give you an XV example is, you know, back in 2017, uh, the way we were set up was uh, our customers, as they interacted with the different various program offices, each program office, you know, using a siloed approach used to talk to the individual and kind of, you know, each one probably had them create a user ID and a password and then, you know, work with them. But yet they were the same individual, but just because the way it was siloed, they, they ended up creating multiple user IDs and passwords with each program office. So early on in 2017, I implemented the notion of an enterprise single sign-on with the intent to say, we need to improve our customer experience and we should not ask the customer to create multiple user IDs and passwords and create profiles multiple times. We should be able to create it once and allow them to be able to share it across their various program offices. So we started with that back in 17 and we continue to make progress in that dimension. And yes, it's still continuing. It's a journey. It's not necessarily complete, but you know, we implemented things like multi-factor authorization, MFA uh, in the single sign-on service. So that allows the customer to have uh, an increased uh, you know, reliability and, and an increased confidence from a security standpoint, right? You know, when we launched new customer facing applications, one of the things I set up as a principle was that these need to be responsibly designed. What that means is simply is they needed to be mobile friendly applications. And so, so it's no different in the public sector as well, where increasingly the citizens are using mobile devices like a smartphone or a tablet to access the, those resources by the agency. Let me talk about digital workflows now, and I'll, I'll try and make this quick as well. When you make a digital only process, you allow the user interface to collect that information in an interactive manner or allow people to also upload documents to support it, but that, that's sort of how you collect it and you create a, a user interface which allows you to only collect the information that you really need to use to process that information or that application for that matter. Let me hit on the data aspect of it, right? Data is the currency of the digital world. And what that means is in today's digital world, we should be looking at data 
as an asset and we should be managing it as an asset. And I think in the federal government, we are sitting on a treasure trove of data that is of immense value both in, in the public sector as well as the private sector. I know we talk about using things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, but guess what? They are founded on a strong data foundation. Training data or data is what they are working with to be able to you know, create informed choices and informed decisions, right? So again, so there's a whole aspect of this. So from an, from an SBA standpoint, around these three dimensions, we've been making progress uh, in, the, in the area of being able to improve our customer experiences. We have many initiatives going around in that, and we continue to make progress in that. Certainly in the digital-only workflows and, and providing better uh, user experiences as the as user interact with us. And then, of course, on the data domain as well, um, I would say that, you know, um, the progress could be faster, but, you know, given constraints we work with, I think it's still going, uh, but, but certainly I would hope we could move faster in that domain. Sanjay, you mentioned the customer experience focus of your digital strategy. I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on how you are improving both the external customer experience as well as what you're doing internally for the agency itself. Yeah, I would say that you know, last year when when we were responding to the COVID uh, situations, uh, the need of the hour, we stood up some brand new portals, citizen-facing portals. And sometimes these were done in probably less than 150 or 180 hours total. And what I mean by that is we stood those portal ups, meaning there was there was no portal there. We designed it, we developed it, we tested it, and we secured it and we implemented it and we turned it on to the public. And that went from zero to full deployment and sometimes as, as much as at most as 180 hours. So, so, so yeah, we have, we've had some tremendous successes in that. Um, and, and it was being responsive to the, to the business needs last year. Uh, there were some stopgap solutions we had to put in place uh, just for, for some temporary times. But increasingly, as we launch new products and solutions, we have an active uh, CX or customer experience angle in them as we go forward. Just two last questions, Sanjay. What uh, characteristics makes uh, one a successful chief technology officer? Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, uh, um, yeah, that's a, that's an important one. So I, I would say really that it comes down to three or four things. So first off, I would say in my experience, successful CTOs, are what I call business-first individuals. They are good at understanding the business and being able to have like a business conversation with the business leaders and not a technology conversation, right? They're big picture thinkers, right? And I think they also are what I call strong collaborators. They have a very strong network in the community and industry because in the tech world, I believe, you don't have to reinvent everything and you don't have to recreate everything. And that's where I think this collaboration and the network across the industry and in the industry you operate in is really critical. And I think the other aspect I would say that CTOs that, that are successful in their roles are those that can come up with solutions that best address the business requirements in the environment and the constraints they're working with. And why I want to emphasize that, Michael, is one can obviously say, well, this solution worked in this environment and you want to replicate it. But no two environments, quite frankly, are exactly the same. 
they may be similar, but the constraints you're working with, the people and other resources you're working with are usually very different. So you have to design and tailor your solutions that fit that environment as opposed to saying, well, I did this there, this worked for me there, so this should work exactly as it is here. That's not necessarily true. So you have to be careful about that. And of course, they have to have a good grasp of the technology landscape. I think that is always critical. Um, but I would say that you know it, it comes down to they are big thinkers, they are business first individuals, they are able to come up with solutions that you know are are fit for the purpose and work in the environment they're working in. They're strong collaborators and a very strong network in the industry and the community they work in. That's what I would say are the, the, the hallmarks of good CTOs. One last question, Sanjay, because that's a wonderful. Uh, a group of characteristics that I think really resonates is what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Uh, I think uh, first and foremost, I would say come with an open mind. Um, You have to be eager to learn. And I'm kind of talking through as I'm thinking about when I came to the public sector, you know, four and a half years ago in 2017. Um, And I think you have to have a belief that you can make a difference. And you have to have that confidence and conviction that you're here to help make a difference and you will work and try to make that difference. You have to take initiative. Uh, You have to collaborate. I think one of the key things that I've learned in the public sector is, yes, you can do things by yourself. And yes, you can achieve success, you know, just by doing things by yourself and within your team and within your groups. But really to make a lasting impact and making a larger impact, which, which, is of benefit across the federal landscape, you have to be collaborating, you have to be partnering, and sometimes you have to be doing that across the agencies to make that truly transformative impact that you're looking for. And so uh, I would say those would be sort of the things I would say um, are are important things for somebody who wants to consider a a career in public service. And then finally, I would say, uh, and this probably is just an overarching comment, Michael, if I may, it's not necessarily applied to just if you're thinking about a career in public service and for any, any careers is that what I would say in conclusion is that you have to become comfortable with operating outside your comfort zone. So what do I mean by that is that if an opportunity presents to operate outside your comfort zone, consider taking it voluntarily rather than becoming an involuntary choice for you. So I would kind of close it out by saying, become comfortable with operating outside your comfort zone is sort of an important takeaway just just for the audience at large. Mm, That's a great insight. Well, Sanjay, thank you for joining me today. I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be here and share your insights and uh, and offer your your guidance and advice. And uh, but I want to thank you more importantly for your dedicated service to the country. Absolutely. And thank you for the option to be here. I, I always enjoy these conversations. And, and I would just say that, you know, I would hope people take some encouragement and, and, and inspiration to say they can also do it like many others, that, like myself, had the option to do it. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Sanjay Gupta, Chief Technology Officer at the Small Business Administration, SBA. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, 
I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.